0: Howdy folks, Welcome to the Ronin Rabbit, a Usaki Ojimbo fan podcast. I'm your host, Ed Moore, and beware, there will be spoilers. Thank you for hanging out with me today as I attempt to shake off my creative coma induced by the pandemic. Also, please excuse the rust that I am attempting to shake off and that I haven't recorded in quite a while. If you want to get in touch with me, you can do so at Teal Productions on Twitter, T-E-A-L. Productions. I post the episodes on the Usagi-Ojimbo fan page on Facebook. The website that I post the episodes on is BigTimeNoise.com slash RoninRabbit You can leave a comment there. And the email address for the show is podcast at gmail.com Usagi-Ojimbo Volume 3, Issue Number 48 from Dark Horse Comics Cover dated May 2001 You can find this story The Escape Reprinted in the usagi Yojimbo book 16. The Shrouded Moon trade paperback. And the usagi Yojimbo saga book 3 trade paperback. Should you not have the actual issue in front of you. Or even if you do. Those are still places that it is reprinted. Now a Dramatis Personae include. Lord Hebi. Kagamaru. Kimi. And Yaye. Also Chizu. Um, I believe this is the first book. Definitely in a while, maybe the first book of Usagi's eponymously titled book that he doesn't appear in. Which is kind of cool. Nothing wrong with that, just something that I noted. So on the cover, we have an image of... Well, it's it's a little... Well, maybe it's not too hard to see what's going on. We have Kagamaru, who is fighting Lord Heavy. Uh, excuse me, Chizu, who's fighting Lord Heavy, But it looks like Kagamaru is attacking Chizu, which is pretty, well, pretty reflective of the story inside. It's not, that's not precisely the order of things, but now we have this as scripted, penciled, inked, and lettered by Mr. San Sakai, uh, the story inside. Uh, outside, Mr. Sakai did the art, the coloring by Mr. Tom Luth. On the back. We also have a nice image of Usagi. Only this image was colored and the color separations done by Jason Val. Inside, we have five panels showing Chizu walking into a a small village somewhere. Again, for those of you that are new, this is uh, Edo period, Japan. One of my favorite things that Mr. Sakai does is is unfortunately, and I say unfortunately because I am familiar with how time consuming it is, but the backgrounds that he illustrates for us showing us setting place setting time Now this one is a little bit off I think because you, it, it's pretty hard to tell night and day in, in a black and white comic. So the first couple panels we don't see it, but in the third fourth and fifth panel we have someone carrying a lantern so that you're definitely being shown that it is nighttime perhaps in the first couple panels it hadn't quite gotten that dark yet maybe that's why mr sakai didn't draw uh, lantern wielders for us but soon we see that chizu is being led uh, first she's being met outside a fortress and inside it looks like it's probably the same woman is leading her through the uh darkened corridors inside and asking forgiveness that the of the dim lighting this part of the castle is rarely used so she's being escorted somewhere out of the way right off the bat we can see she's asked now by the uh, servant tests or the the female servant that ushered her in to please you know wait in this location this room for lord heavy Uh, uh, no sooner does that servant leave that a second comes in and asks if Chizu would like some tea. Chizu acquiesces and a few moments later the tea is brought. In the process, the servant trips and spills the tea on Chizu. Chizu waves it off. She's not of that temperament. You know, things like that will happen. She understands. The servant leaves and returns this time successfully uh, with some tea. Another set of five panels here on the next page, and we see Chizu waiting by herself. A candle is being used to show the passage of time as the candle melts. Till finally, Chizu is thinking for herself. Now, I know once upon a time, and I don't see any markings here um, on this particular candle, but I I am familiar that in medieval Europe, that uh, at times you could buy candles that were demarked, and you would know the amount of time that had passed for every interval was whatever time period it was but i don't see a subsequent marking on this candle just that the essentially the entire candle has burnt while Chizu's waiting at this point she starts to to think uh, out loud at least and and wonder what is going on is heavy late uh, is he doing this on purpose if he's doing this on purpose what is the purpose is it to unnerve her is it to put her off my thinking, as I was reading this, is that he is using everything so far to show Chizu her place in Lord Hebi's uh, scheme. Right, an unused, darkened portion of the the castle, probably his castle, uh, making her wait an interminable amount of time till finally the door slides open and we see a tail slink through, holding a candle, unlit candle. And we see the snake eyes uh, as they appear through the doorway. He enters immediately, lighting and placing another candle. Um, they make acknowledgments of each other, and then Hebe just or Heavy Heavy, excuse me, just jumps right in with actually why he called her, and he's called her here because someone has uh, leveled some charges of incompetence against her, and he starts listing the charges. We, as the reader, are familiar with the charges. Uh, The first is that she obtained a formula for some very powerful explosives based on black powder. Um, That was in Volume 3, this Dark Horse Volume, Issue 4. I talked about that in Episode 77 of the show. Uh, He accuses, she gives the uh, reasonings, the excuses. Uh, We read the story, we know what happened, so... Doesn't necessarily match up with what he says Doesn't necessarily match up with what she says Uh, Next he brings up the list of conspirators uh, that occurred That occurred in issue 9 of this volume I talked about that in episode 82 of the show Uh, The third accusation involves the grass cutter sword That was issues 39 through 45 Just a couple issues ago as a matter of fact And I talked about that in alternating episodes, starting with 127 and ending with 137. I talked about those stories. Hebi is not necessarily convinced, but he moves on. And just as the conversation moves on, uh, Kagamaru enters. We see that he was the impetus for what Hebi is doing. Both feeling perhaps that uh, Chizu is not um, leading appropriately, but also wanting her position. So it's kind of, is it one, is it the other? A mixture of both. But we definitely have seen over the course of, Chi, of, of the the Ninja Clan's history, particularly that between Kagamaru and Chizu, that um, things have been, well, we've just, we've seen the relationship as it, as it has uh, developed to this point. Not total development, of course, because they existed before we were part of the of the story but we we see where things have gone and, and how they have led up to this point heavy uh being a patron more or less of the clan is just now being brought uh, brought up to speed on everything that has been going on in the recent past that being the last what uh 50 55 issues or so relatively speaking the two ninja speak harshly back and forth. You're not fit. I am fit. What do you think you're doing? You're just trying to take, you know, back and forth, back and forth. Until finally, they both, oddly enough, in someone else's house, draw swords. I find that... I found that a little surprising. Um, Chizu avoided doing that as as much as she could, but she... Kagamaru came at her several times uh, until, ultimately, to defend herself, she had to draw her sword as well. So, when she does, though, he sees, uh, Kagamaru sees that he is not going to be able to overcome her or overcome her quickly. So he yells out, now, now, indicating to spring the trap as the doors and walls are kicked in and we have just a slew of ninja, two, four, six, eight. 10, 12, 14, 16 in this one panel attacking her. Uh, now the the panel is a two-thirds panel of a two-page spread. And then the bottom third of the two-page spread is a panel, smaller panel on the left page and a smaller panel on the right. So very dramatic. And then we break off and focus in on the two smaller panels. And I know I've mentioned this in the past, but I, I think stands. Uh, sense of cinematographic cinematographic. I think I I think that's the appropriate term uh, usage is is uh, on point it, it's very it keeps things interesting but also the setting and the nature of the story a lot of times allows for that to be successful and he uses it Very, very well. So now Chizu is attempting to escape this trap that has been set. She now, um, in her mind, has labeled all of these ninja against her as enemy. And as enemy, she can just kill them in the attempt to save her life to escape. So she sets about doing that very thing. A couple pages later, we have another panel with 2, 4, 6, 8, 10, 12, 14, 16, 18, 21 ninja Uh, many of them different ninja from what was inside the room because now she is outside of the room in the corridors of the castle. Some of these are probably repeat dudes or dudettes, as the case may be, Uh, but the vast majority, I suspect, are not. There there seems to be an endless supply as she is running through. She keeps encountering group after group after group. Uh, Finally, she gets to where she is able to access the courtyard, but sees the courtyard filling with even more. Um, reaching into her coat, she, well, actually, I'm sorry, reaching into the coat of a ninja that she has killed, she grabs a couple, one, two, not sure how many smoke bombs, and sets them off, giving her an opportunity to put some distance between herself and the ninja attempting to kill her. They're in this, um, courtyard inside the fortress she is able to distance and get to the wall or one of the walls of the fortress doesn't look like it's an outside wall yet but that is most certainly where she's going and as she is up on the wall and out of the you know a lot of the direct torch light that there is uh, a much more darkened area she sees that the sleeve upon which the servant earlier in the evening had spilled the tea is glowing. She surmises there must have been some sort of phosphorescent compound in the tea. Uh, my thought was, wow, I hope that that tea was different from the tea you ingested because otherwise you're running around with some glowing guts. Yeah, oh, sorry. Um, but yeah, I just, I wondered if that phosphorescent compound was, I guess it was not in the tea that she actually ingested. I'm sure she would have been able to detect that because by what we see here, her sleeve is glowing quite well. So there there must have been a lot of that compound. Using the focusing of the light, but also the fact that they have a lighted target, several of the ninja... Loose some throwing stars at her. One happens to nick her. She realizes immediately afterwards, from the way that the wound feels, that the shuriken must have been poisoned. So now she is trying to escape, um, vastly overwhelmed in number. It's dark. She's poisoned on top of that. So slowly but surely, things are not going in her favor, as it seems. She runs up against several of the ninja on the rooftop. Finally, facing off one that she knows by name, Yaye, Y A Y E, with a diacritical mark. I, I believe that's that would be Yaye. I'm not sure. Somebody correct me. Uh, somebody correct me with anything that I say that is off or gooberish or wrong or whatever. I, I don't mind. Um, I'm. I enjoy the fact that reading Mr. Sakai's books, I have an opportunity to learn just as much in, as anything else, which I'll get into a, a little bit here at the end when I talk about some terms that he used in the book. So she's running. She gets out of sight momentarily of the of all of the ninja, and then we see her falling, leaping, jumping. Yeah, it, it it looks like falling here, really, and and. In a moment we'll see that's what it was falling into the moat and several of the ninja uh, nearest ninja loose more throwing stars and many more strike her before she hits the moat floating uh, face down down the river until they can find her off to the side here uh, near shore amongst some reeds turn her over and realize that the body that they had grabbed was not chizu but is in fact yaye so and that interim where she was not seen she had subdued or i guess seemingly killed yaya either switched or just put her coat on the body and then threw the body off the wall into the moat so the ninja realize their mistake and continue the search one of them goes and reports to kagamaru who is with hebi and so hebi becomes aware that kagamaru has mm, failed to secure chizu gives him some uh some advice as to how he should proceed with his job and you can tell that kagumaru doesn't take it very kindly uh, much in the way that you know chizu was not taking kindly how hebi was treating her now a large portion of that is because the ninjas are uh, secondary to hebi in in hierarchy at, at the very least secondary they, he, they could be even farther below but he is master they are servant and he does not let them forget that but the ninja are, um, or the ninja leadership so far, have been proud enough that 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 kind of rankles them. It's not a, it's not a partnership. Uh, like I believe a lot of times, you know, the the ninja would be used as an arm of the master. Um, this is not the the ninja are not an arm. They're of uh, something that is much lower on the body. Uh, and fortunately, Hebi is a snake, so it's pretty difficult, really, to you know ascertain what extremity lower on the body. But So the ninja keep looking and we find uh, one of the female ninja here walking the grounds. And we see that it is Kimmy. And we can recognize that if we've been reading the previous issues right away because her arm is in a sling. We know Kimmy was recently hurt. So Kimmy finds Chizu who is crouched down amongst the bushes off to um, one side of, I don't know, I guess... Probably what we're going to assume is is the outside of the fortress, but still up against the wall. So she's still very close, hiding in the bushes, trying to uh, suffer through the effects of the multiple poisons that she has coursing through her system. And um, I didn't say this about Yaye, but her her death mask, uh, the the facial visage that she has when they flip her over, is not very pleasant. So this this poison is a Particularly nasty, particularly virulent um, concoction that they have put together. And I say that because we see that Chizu is suffering mightily as she is trying, trying to live through her exposure. But Kimmy uh, leaves her, directs the ninja elsewhere. I've searched this area, she's not here, you know, to, to put him off. Refers to Chizu as Kashira, and then she herself runs back to continue the search elsewhere to just finish taking the attention somewhere else of the party searching for Chizu. Last page, five panels, we see um, the fortress, we see Chizu struggling to walk away closer, closer, and then we see her face. After years of ingesting small daily doses of the toxin, Chizu has built up a resistance to the shuriken's poison. But with the weight of the entire Nico ninja clan against her, how long can Chizu stay alive? A fugitive ninja. And that's uh, that's the end of it. We see that she's in pretty rough shape. Again, very uh, ugly visage that she is as she is suffering the effects of this, this poison. Now in the issue, uh, we were given several words here. Shuriken shogun ronin we're all familiar with those a couple of those that i want to point out here a little bit we see that um, at one point hebi refers to her um chizu as jonin j-o-n-i-n jonin which can be translated as chief it can also be translated as as the the high ninja now also though we see Kimi refer to chizu as kashira which can also be translated as chief um I, I guess I've seen this before, these two words, and I, I never realized that they, they translated, and I'm, I'm throwing up quotes here, uh, in English. English uh, Apparently, English is a rather um, restricted language as far as expression. And uh, I have another example of that here in a moment, actually. But we, we have perhaps the, the word kashira is used by females or to denote a female leader, so perhaps there's a a genderness not directed, common enough that it's always used that way. But perhaps that is why um, the word kashira is used as opposed to Jon- as opposed to jonin. Also, uh, kashira could be the internal the internal organizational reference to. A chief or a leader, whereas a Jonin would be an external reference to a group's head or leader. Perhaps those are the differences. I am not sure. Uh, my limited Google Foo did not allow me to find this in a um, convenient enough time span. If somebody out there wants to um, educate me, please do. Um, I have said before that I am uh, uh, woefully Caucasian. And so these, these things like this are, um, I have very limited exposure other than what I want to do. So please educate me if someone can or, or f- feels that they, they can. Another uh, phrase that we were exposed to was nasai." Now that is said by the servant after she has spilled tea on Shizu. Uh, very appropriate. Translating roughly to I'm sorry. Um, now what struck me is that the root for the word, I believe it was Nasai at this point, I, I neglected to write that, or perhaps the uh, root of the entire Goma uh, nasai was a, in Japanese, as it was written in English, was a small word of about seven letters, eight letters, but, but the translation was about the equivalent in words in English. So this one one word in Japanese translated to a, a conceptual phrase of seven eight nine words in english and that just that just really struck me um and just reaffirmed one of the reasons that i I find the japanese language um interesting is because there there are words that are concepts um as, as there are in other foreign languages whereas in english you don't you don't necessarily run across that very much i don't i don't know if that's you know necessarily good or bad, it, I guess depends on what you're doing. But um, our words, to to a very large extent, have a very one-to-one relationship. This word means this thing. Uh, this this one small concept. If it's a conceptual word, you know. But here uh, in Japanese, it's the, and it it also is kind of that. Um, it lends to the um, dubbing of Japanese language movies where you see their lips barely move, but the phrase that comes out is this long entire sentence and you know that what that actor said in Japanese could not match this long English, but that is the, the difference in the translation. That's one of the uh, memes, you know, that, that are used to make fun of that situation where foreign language movies, but particularly uh, Japanese and probably uh, Chinese movies, when they are dubbed A lot of times what you hear doesn't match up what you see, the movement of the mouth. All right, so I think that is everything that I wanted to point out, everything that really struck me about this issue. Next time out, I'll be talking about the Color Classics issue number seven, which, if I recall correctly, is the final issue of that chapter, that volume, or of that book. However, each of these color books has a different name apparently volume uh, name i I wish they would have stuck with color classics because i really like that it's certainly less confusing either way i'll probably get into that more when i go on about it next episode but color classics issue seven will be next time thanks a lot folks i appreciate you listening ciao